At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, listeners. We are the antagonist evangelists, the opponents of popular, the naysayers of the new. We are so very wrong about games. My name, Michael Walker, and I'm here with my good friend, Mark. How are you today, Mark? Walker, people are going to get the mistaken impression that we take ourselves seriously and that we view ourselves as some kind of iconoclasts. We don't, (laughs) and we're not. I think if they listen to like at least 15 seconds in, all will become quite clear to them. I don't know, two and a half seconds of that, and I would have shut off. So let's get on with this show. We are a board gaming podcast. We talk about the games we played this week, then we're going to talk about some news and why it doesn't matter, and then we're going to talk about our feature game of the week, which is Vienna Connection by Portal Games. Mark, what did you play this week? It is another week, Walker, and thus I can report with great satisfaction that with another week comes more playings of Regicide. I keep introducing new people to Regicide. Granted, my social circle in Vancouver is not particularly extensive, but a great way to get started is by showing them this delightful little box. And in addition to getting a great game of Regicide out of it, you also get instant credibility. It's wonderful, because Regicide wins friends wherever it goes. You start off as a, this is just a quick little card game. It uses a basic uh, deck of cards. It's a co-op, and the people are like, oh, okay, whatever. And then you deal it out, and then two hands in, people are like, oh, wow. Wow, what? What? And then next week, if they see you again, they say, what was the name of that game? I've been thinking about it all week. And you say, Regicide, and hold up the box, and it twinkles, and it shines like justice. No, I'm serious. Regicide is absolutely fantastic, and I just, if you ever listen to the show, I've been seeing the same thing for weeks, and I'm going to keep saying it until I believe that some of you are listening. You have a I know, I had a, whole, I had a whole bit saved up, because I also got my two copies of Regicide, and we played, I was going to, I had a bit of saying this new game that you haven't talked about before, but yes. Oh, I'm sorry, I stepped on your bit. We my have talked apologies. about it a lot. 
But you have a deck of cards at home in all likelihood. If not, you pr- you might be able to scrape together the buck fifty at a convenience store or a dollar store to go get a standard deck of cards. The rules are online. Play the game, fall in love with it, and then go buy the official version to support the designers, if for no other reason than the art is incredibly delightful. And one of the things, because I like to impart slightly new content, all of that is mostly things I've said before, Regicide is in increasingly showing to me the extent to which there's substantive communication between the different players. It's almost at the level of a trick-taking game. You know, in a standard trick-taking game, you're not allowed to say things about your hand, whether you're playing competitively or with partners. But in Regicide, if somebody plays a clubs in certain contexts, you can start drawing inferences about what you need to do to help them out. Because as a co-op game, very often the loudest communication can come through your actual card plays. It's not quite at the level of, say, Bridge. It's not quite at the level of, say, Hanabi. But it's definitely of the same type of communication. And the better I get at Regicide... Please note, I have yet to win Regicide. But the better I get at Regicide, the more I'm starting to appreciate the extent to which successful play rests on communication with your partner and reading what your partner is communicating to them. So more plays of Regicide by Paul Abrahams, Luke Badger, and Andy Richdale and Badgers from Mars. This is a review copy we got from the publisher. But you, Walker, purchased yours the good old-fashioned way, as I understand it. I did with 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 dollar dollary dues and more plays of regicide to follow in the near future do you have any more comments about regicide walker no you pretty well covered everything i said easy to teach we had uh chip the third had not played it before and he enjoyed it very much as well and so now that we have our own fancy dancy copy we will be playing it more often as well i'm very glad to hear it because like you said you can play with normal cards but had you already played with the regicide cards Playing with normal cards just doesn't quite cut it. You're probably right. I don't think I could go back. But as an introduction, as a try before you buy, or play the tabletop simulator uh, module, whatever. What I'm I'm saying is this. We're very seldom evangelists here on Sovereign About Games. You don't have a good reason not to try the thing if you're at all interested in co-op card games. That's all. There's no barrier to entry, practically. So go forth. Try Regicide and Sin No More. For me, Mark, there's a game called Brew. It came out, was talked about quite often, but with shipping the way it is, it took quite a while to get over here to Canada. I'm not sure how long they've had it down south, but I just got my copy just recently. This is a Pandasaurus game designed by Steve Torres, and I bought it because of the art itself and the fact that it was Pandasaurus Games. We got the last at the end of last year we got gods love dinosaurs at the very end it was this gem that we really loved it sort of came out of nowhere it had this this very cool mechanism and intriguing theme so i thought you know let's give this a try because the art was fantastic and it had dice and that's pretty well all i knew going in and then when i got the game i read the rules and i was a little bit troubled because it was pretty well roll these dice place them on the board when it's your turn, place one and then get the resource that where you put the die. And it seemed like that was the extent of the game. And there was like some animals you collected and so on and so forth, but there is a lot more to it. And we've played it twice now and it, it has a lot more to give than what the rules sort of present you at the beginning. So what you're doing, Mark, is you're collecting these resources by playing the dice, but you're playing the dice on these forest cards. And at the end of the round, once everyone's played their six dice, you do a sort of a uh, area majority on these cards. Whoever has the most dice there will collect those cards and get victory points. But out of the six dice that you have, two of them are neutral. 
So not only are you playing colored dice, you're playing these neutral dice. And the neutral dice, once they go down, they don't belong to anyone. But there's this sort of two-step process in t- to control the forest. Not only do you have to have more dice than everyone else there, you have to have more dice than there are neutral dice. So oh, fascinating. You can, you can sabotage people by, you know, it's like he's winning by two. And if I put one more, you know, neutral die, then, then nobody will get it. Well, nobody will get it. And then there is this all this interplay with these potions that will also help you move. It's a very take that game. As long as you make sure people know when they're going in that that's what's going to be happening because these potions let you move these dice around and you can only play one potion a turn and you can only play them when you have a turn. So there's a few potions that, that you pull dice back. So you'll get extra turns. And then there's also the neutral dice. There's a wind. They're all different elements, fire, wind, water. And there's the wind icon that lets you, you know, switch with one of the dice you already have on the board and do that action again. So therefore giving you yet another turn. So if you can sort of hold off to the end of the round, you can start manipulating these dice and no, no one can do anything about it because they don't have another turn. This is not even talking about these creatures that you recruit. Uh, Normal characters can only have three on the ready type thing, and they give you all these different combos from allowing you to get more resources, from, you know, helping you get, you know, all sorts of different things. And then at any point, you re- you can retire them to these forests that you've won by area majority, thereby making them worth more points. So we thought it was a very interesting sort of theme, because a lot of games have it that you, you know, you know, recruit animals or something and you sort of just, you know, suck them for all the, all their worth. But this one, you actually can, you know, let them release them back into their own sort of habitat. We thought it was a very interesting mechanism. Anyway, so this is brew. I'm sure we might talk about more. Everyone even has, you know, their own unique powers as well. You know, they have two sides to the player card. You can play with no powers or play with a very mild special ability. I really enjoyed it. Both plays glad that it, it pulled through and wasn't as generic as I thought it was going to be. You had me at dice placement plus area majority. That sounds really fascinating. I really like that interplay with the neutral dice. I'm looking forward to giving it a shot. And that is Brew by Pandasaurus Games. I played another game of Space Space. Walker, let me, let, me, let me tell you how this works. You see, in society, yes, you're shaking your head. You should be shaking your head. I was shaking my head on the inside, but I'm too nice a guy to do it visibly. There were six of us, Walker. This is a tale of, of course, an embarrassment of riches. Six oh, players Mark. Six players is a situation that many people in many other parts of the world would kill or die for, and I, my heart bleeds for them. But, of course, if all this results in is a six-player game of Space Base, perhaps they'll reconsider and decide to go into voluntary isolation again. Now, there's a, there's, there's a good coda to this story that I'll get to later, but let me start with the tragedy. I, I'm not a huge fan of Space Base. I think it's better than Machi Koro, but that's not saying much. It's hugely derivative of Machi Koro, which in turn, I think they're both very, very similar to, but vastly inferior to my own unpublished game design, Roll a Six When a Cookie. Roll a Six When a Cookie, I find vastly more satisfying, faster, easier to teach, plus, you know, cookies. So there were six of us going around and, and somebody's like, we could play Space Base. And I'm like, I didn't know you could play Space Base with six. I mean, it's one of those ideal player count zero games, but with six, that sounds like madness. I proposed a number of alternatives. They were roundly ignored. Utter silence. Space Base was on the table, and I shrugged and said, okay, let's play Space Base. Oh my goodness, Space Base. So you roll the die, see? Here's what happens. Let me let me walk you through it real slowly. I Are think you, you t- roll two of them. It's sort of like a Catan-type game, right? I know, I know. You, you roll both of them, <laughs> and then you get the stuff that the dice show, Walker. And honestly... Whoa. Slow I know. down, slow down, slow down, slow down. Sorry, this is like input overload. Just I like know. Back up, 
Back part up of, one step. Part of the problem is, and I don't know if this is just as a result of what I'm playing, I'm not saying this is the dominant strategy. I'm saying it's the strategy that I pursued three times with vastly more success than any of my opponents. I see people saying, well, if I put this on the 9, and then when I trigger the 9, that means I get to charge the 10, and when the 10 is charged, I get to slide up to the 12, and ooh, bonanza. And I'm like, okay, well, I'll put th this point generation on the 2, and I'll put this point generation on the 3, and I'll put this point generation on the 4, and I'm just going to get points every time anyone rolls the dice. All right, let's go. And that's what happens. And it's just this, I see these people building these weird ramshackle engines that maybe someday will do some fabulously convoluted thing, and I'm like, Oh, you rolled a two, I get a point. Oh, you you rolled a four, I get a point. Ah, 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 you rolled a four again, I get another point. Especially in a six-player game, oh my god. I know, I know. Well, again, this is the strategy that I pursued in smaller count games as well, but with six especially, I looked at the, I looked at this and I actually looked over to Dr. Contra and I said, look, here's the thing, if you want to do well, numbers seven and up don't exist. And sure enough, <laughs> anyway. I could rag on Space Base all day. Uh, look, John D. Clare, I have found his designs to be serviceable, often derivative, and sometimes painful. He did Downfall, which I thought was painful. He did Edge of Darkness, which we both found super painful. But, you know, sometimes he does derivative stuff that's fine. I mean, Space Base, if played very briskly, is fine. It's fun to roll dice and see what happens. Just in the same way that when playing Quack, Quacks of Quedlingburg or games of that ilk, it's fun to pull things from a bag and see, see what happens. And Cubitos is a fine, if derivative, deck builder type thing. But honestly, I don't understand the enthusiasm for him as a designer, and I would much rather play Roll a Six when a Cookie. Someday, in a future ap a podcast episode, wait for it, I will explain the very complicated and detailed rules for Roll a Six when a Cookie. So anyway, that was my experience with Space Base. So when ordering Regicide, going through the catalog, I saw Fortress by Freedom Freeze came back in. And I remember uh, quite a few years ago, uh, I played this at a local convention we had, and we got, you know, four or five games in, but never got through the whole deck. I remember being very interesting and wanted to, you know, you know, play it out some more. So we got that out, and we did it even on the, right on the stream. We did unboxing of it, and you go right into it, because there is no rule book. You simply unpack the cards right on the top. It tells you what to do. You deal out some cards, and it says, well, if this happens, then you do that, and you just sort of start playing the game. So if you want, you know, a family accessible game, then this is what it, you know, this has it in spades. And what you're doing is you simply take over Fortress, and then if the three hourglasses come up and you have the most fortresses, you win. So in the first few games, there's only one fortress. So it's sort of like hot potato, right? And so you're playing down some troops underneath the fortress. And then someone slides you some other troops because they've finally got some matching pairs. And if it beats what you have under yours, then they take over the fortress and more of the same. And then as you slowly go down the deck... Well, I'll just go over, because it's so easy, I'll just quickly go over it. Then whoever won, those cards that were under the fortress go out of the game. You deal five new cards off of off of the deck, and then you use that whole deck to play the next game. And then you just cycle through it over and over, and suddenly, you know, interesting and weird mechanism starts happening. More fortresses come out, and it's a very, very neat design by Freedom Freeze. I keep forgetting that you weren't around the night that Louis, Louis, Huey, and I played through our copy of Fortress, because Fortress has about 12-ish games in it, and we just spent two hours going through Fortress, playing it about 12 times. We found it thoroughly delightful. It was a marvelous experience of discovery, 
the ratio of new interesting things happening to repetitiveness was vastly better than nearly any other legacy game I've ever had. And honestly, the value proposition is through the roof. We're talking about, you know, $20 Canadian for a small box game for a very, very, very novel experience. I then had the copy. You don't destroy anything. I gave away that copy at Swag Bingo at uh, Shucks later that year. And I forgot you weren't there. I'm a huge fan of Fortress by Friedman Priest. Would I play it again? I don't know. Maybe. But I had a blast doing it, going through it the first time. So that was Fortress by Freedom Freeze. Speaking of the Twitch stream, what we were playing, we did unboxing, we unboxed uh, Ruination, we unboxed Fortress, we unboxed Brew, we unboxed uh, a pack of Regicide so people could see the art. And then we finally got down to our game and and uh, Huey and I played a, a two-player game of Destinies. I played the first scenario solo and we decided to stream the second scenario with the two of us playing. This is a game where you have three different stats. I think it's like knowledge, strength, and dexterity. And you have all these tokens on like a chart that's one through 12. And the game will tell you where these little tokens start. And then you're going to roll two white dice that go from one to four. And then some purple dice that you might have accumulated. And then depending on what, what number you got, you look at your little chart and how many tokens are on that number or below is how many successes you input on the app. It's very heavily app driven you go through the story or oh i shouldn't say what our story was because it's sort of spoilery but it's a i think it's a better experience solo Mm. it's very interesting the fact that the two players have different destinies and it's sort of you know whoever can get to there is the fastest and we sort of got to them at the same uh well that's not that's that's not true he got to his sooner i had to do a couple more things but then i got more successes when I started my destiny sort of trail and sort of caught up. And finally, I think we're unsure how the app works. So more on this later, I'm sure. So not knowing how the app work, it's just sort of, you know, click at the end while you win and sort of gives you a story at the end. Yeah. You had commented previously when talking about destinies that you thought that the multiplayer experience was not going to be as satisfying as the solo experience. And so I'm unsurprised to hear that comment from you. But are you enjoying the narrative elements? I am. Uh, Huey less so, but I, w- I really enjoyed it. I think it's really fun. It's fun interacting with the listeners. They sort of like, Huey was doing his own thing. I let the listeners sort of guide, you know, my destructive character on his path of, of villainy and destruction. Okay, first of all, yes, that does sound fun. But secondly, why do our listeners keep encouraging you to engage in a life of crime? I, I am unsure. I think they find it humorous. What have we done? I agonize over, you know, the poor soul stealing from the church and and stuff like that. Wow. So Destinies is put out by Lucky Duck Games, designed by Michael Golbowiski and Philip Malunski. I'm sorry if I destroyed those. But I think for what you get in the box, I think it's a fantastic little game. It's like tons of miniatures, which Huey also uh said that were completely pointless there's the app is so much there mm. you can pretty well play everything on the app i think the the map tiles and the figures are more for if you're playing with the full three players so you can sort of you know figure out where you are otherwise you just sort of because it's literally just to remind you where you are huh. because you're clicking on the the app you know where you are and what you want to do and the the physical components are very secondary, except for the dice, of course, and your player board. Interesting. 
on the topic of app integration, this is actually going to be uh, a motif that's going to be repeated over and over, because later on we're going to be talking about Vienna Connection. I played Imperium Legends, and one of the reasons why I played Imperium Legends, this being the second box to Imperium Classics, the deck builder by Nigel Buckle and David Sertze, published by Osprey Games, I played the solo the Atlanteans against the Olmecs, and first of all, kudos for including a Mesoamerican civilization in the game. I think more and more civilization games need to recognize that Western Europe was not the entirety of human civilization. But putting all that aside, I was prompted to try the scoring app, because a third party has made a scoring app for Imperium, and you know me, I do not like to use scoring apps. Nine times out of ten, I find that they're a waste of time, and they're just more cumbersome. You have to pull out a device and do a whole bunch of data entry, when instead you can just, well, this is worth one, this is worth three, this is worth one. But the scoring for Imperium can be relatively involved. Even then, that didn't prompt me to try any kind of scoring assistance. What prompted me to try the scoring assistance was the, the announcement that the app now had integrated optical character recognition. Namely, instead of having to enter in all the cards you'd acquired, because in the game of Imperium, you can acquire a fair degree of cards into your deck, and they can be in various places, and so you have to go... Th- all you have to do is just take a picture of all of the cards just laid out. So at the end of the game, I just... There were four separate areas that the app cared about, really. You lay out the cards in columns, take a picture, and the app will read what the card is and then score it for you. I was very, very impressed. Now, will I always score Imperium this way? Not necessarily. I don't find it complete and total game changer. But I will say, in terms of integrated app assistance to a game that doesn't require an app to run, this is probably the best one that I've seen so far, with the possible exception of various uh, bot automations for Mage Knight. Uh, So what I'm saying is that Imperium is just like Mage Knight. And so kudos to the designers who've done this. And honestly, I remember, this is just going to be a a brief back-in-the-day comment, if you'll permit me, Walker. No, no problem. I'll dust it off. I remember back when the only kind of scanners you had were those handheld monstrosities, and when OCR was basically a 10% shot at best. And now, what a world we live in, Walker. No, seriously, it, it is a kind of magic to be able to just say, oh, okay, I need to score my deck, fan out the cards, take a picture, and then your your phone or the website will score the deck for you. That is kind of impressive, and I was very happy to try it. Now, as far as the actual game is concerned, Imperium is marvelous. There's some, been some comments online that the Atlanteans might be a little bit overpowered. I do appreciate how responsive the designers, both Nigel Buckle and David Sirte, have been online on BoardGameGeek about talking about various strategies and various things they've discovered during playtesting offering us some insight into what might seem overpowered and how to counter it. Uh, They are considering changing one of the cards in the Atlanteans as a result of this. I don't know whether this indicates, as is any case when they're talking about changes after the fact, I don't know if this indicates sloppy design work to begin with or just really attentive work once the game is out in the wild. Possibly both. I don't know. But it was interesting to try the Atlanteans because they're a little bit different from from other factions. They don't start out as barbarian civilization. They always start out as an empire, which means they get access to very strong cards right off the right off the hop, as Walker would say. And the Olmecs, when played against them as a bot, have some very interesting things in the solo AI. So another great experience with Imperium Legends capped off with a, a very, very impressive experience with app integration. So when you when the app finished scoring your thing, did it ask you like where you were playing, and then ask your mother's maiden? <laughs> no, no, no. Like all you that? need is your social security number. Oh, okay, well that's good, and a blank check. All right, good stuff. Uh, no, no blank check, but only three news. Okay, good stuff. 
That's good. I think that's I think that's eminently reasonable. Yeah, right? that's fair. So yeah, yeah, because you talked about Isle of Sky, I had to show Isle of Sky to Chip the Third because he hasn't played many of these the earlier games. You know, because Isle of Sky is very early. You know, it's ancient. Yeah, this is designed by Alexander Pfister and put out by Lookout Games. It is one of my favorite games. It's one of the very first games I reviewed. I just really enjoy it. It's got this great bidding system and uh, tile placement and uh, random scoring. I should say, I shouldn't say random scoring, but uh, every game will have different points. And to that point, we we drew, for the very first time, I actually changed one out because we got three that were almost all completely identical. It was all about, you know, having land masses. And I thought, okay, well, for someone's first play, I think it would be more interesting to have different types of scoring things. So I switched a couple of them out. As the very I'm not first criticizing. Time. Stop Stop looking at me like that, I'm Walker. Not, I'm saying it's the very first time I've ever had to, you know, manipulate the rules like that. But he enjoyed it. I thought it was great. I, you know, employed different strategies this time, different ways to play. Different. It's it's one of those sort of like bluffing games, right? Where you sort of try to dictate the pace of the game by by making your tiles worth a certain amount of money. And I like that sort of, you know, sort of manipulating the pace. I, I wouldn't necessarily put it in terms of pace myself. It's more about manipulating the economy, you know, figuring out when a bid is apt to get you money versus figuring out when a bid is apt to make sure that you get the tile and or deny it from somebody else. Well, I, what I mean is, is if if you constantly make your tiles worth a lot of money, it tends to make everyone else do that and it drains the economy. So not, so people don't have these, you know, giant piles of money behind their screen. You know what I mean? You just keep pushing the prices high. Sure. So there's not this buildup is what I mean. Sure. But in terms of the pacing, and this is actually kind of sort of one of my criticisms of, of Isle of Sky from last week, the pace of the game is very fixed. There's a fixed number of rounds and on your turn during the auction phase, all you can do is buy one tile. So there's no notion of you leveraging your cash to acquire tons of tiles, except insofar as you bid up your own tiles so you're going to buy them at the end of the round. That's all. True that. On the topic of quick games that are definitely more deep than they first appear, I played Fairy Tale, our favorite drafting game by Satoshi Nakamura. And this was a game that had been taught to some people that I met in Vancouver previously, and when we had a little bit of time to kill, these are people who had not yet been introduced to Regicide. Uh, so I said, well, we can play Fairy Tale," And they immediately said, oh, yeah, yeah, no, Fairy Tale was great. And it was uh, very illustrative because later on, again, during the uh, six-player situation of Space Base that I described before, somebody suggested, of course, Seven Wonders. I managed to hold back my involuntary retching re reflex when someone suggested such a thing. I was able to say, well, you know, I, I, I really like drafting games, but uh, Seven Wonders isn't my favorite, or something equally diplomatic. And again, one of the brilliant things about Fairy Tale that it does so, so well in terms of its drafting is it internalizes hate drafting or denial drafting into the design because you draft five cards and play three. And so you constantly have to be on the lookout for what everyone else has. If you draft five cards that you want to play, you're playing it wrong, and you're probably passing cards to your opponents that they really, really love. And so you can't just play for your own tableau the way you can in lots of other drafting games. So I adore Furry Tale. The scoring is the most complicated bit of it, and it isn't even all that complicated because it's all printed on the card. Very, very quick, very accessible, easy to teach, super fun, vastly deeper than it appears, and allows you to try out something new every time because you're more or less, 
given gentle guidance by what you draw in the initial rounds. So it's got that great balance of luck of the draw and ability to control for what's going to be happening in later rounds. I've played Fairy Tale almost triple digits now, and I'm still not getting close to getting tired of it. If you want to really see what quick drafting can be all about, I highly recommend Fairy Tale. So you know I, Mark, played Let's Build a Bus Route the Dice Game, and I wanted to go back to it. This is designed by Sachi and, and produced by Sachi and Sachi. That sounds like nepotism to me. I know. I played this with Chip the Third, and he really loved it. We had a great time playing it, and it really turned into this. That I, I'm not. It, it happened a little bit in our game, but we felt as though it was more by accident, and just it was more deliberate in this second plane. It was the hate drafting. It was it was ah. watching the other players' board, and and leaving them no dice to to use to maneuver, Good. and making sure they took penalties, and it had a very you know very interesting play. I'm. I think out of all of the roll and rights uh, that I've played so far, it is by far my favorite. It it does not lead to the the sort of uh, uh, twitch system. There's a very big. I'm going to be talking about this a bit later. Uh, the roll and rights are, are huge on Twitch because everyone can just download a sheet and play along yes. with you know. So you have hundreds of people playing at the same time. So unfortunately, it doesn't lead to that sort of atmosphere because it's you know you have that central board you know that we played and yeah so you, you you can only play with the two players but other than that i think it's a great roll and write game oh, i'm glad to hear that, there, that it was slightly more interactive and head-to-head on the second playing finally for me i said that there was a there was some good news with respect to getting six players together i got to play quest quest is the follow-up to the resistance by don eskridge published by indie boards and cards and I've been very much looking forward to Quest, because here's the thing. The Resistance is one of my all-time favorite games. I think it is an absolutely revelatory game in terms of social deduction. I think that the balance of information is perfect. I think that the level of interaction is high. I think that the level of social engagement is just about perfect. But the problem is, it is and can be an intense experience, because everything is deterministic, and everything is not necessarily deducible, but you have to account for everything you do at all times, especially when you're playing with people who are taking it seriously. And when you contrast that to other forms of social deducting games, like the One Night games, like Werewolf, where there's a fair degree of opacity and no one really knows what's going on and you can always just shrug your shoulders and say, eh, I was operating on a hunch, which are much less intense experiences. And so getting together large groups of people that want to play The Resistance can sometimes be a challenge. Enter Quest. Quest is much, much faster simpler, and at the same time introduces a thing that a lot of social deduction game, ga- gamers love, which is lots of possible optional roles. Because core resistance doesn't really lend itself to a whole profusion of roles the way a lot of other games do, although there are some optional modules. The salient difference between Quest and the Resistance, just to be, just to be clear, is you don't vote on who gets to go on a mission. Somebody's the leader, the leader just decides who goes on the mission, and that's it. There's no discussion about it. Or at least there's no vote. You can discuss about it all you like. You still argue with the leader, call them an idiot, and tell them who they should send. And you should definitely send me because I'm clean. I would never throw red. You can trust me absolutely 100%. Put me in, coach. But anyway, there's some other wrinkles. Uh, There's this magic token you can send on somebody who will makes them throw a success, unless they're Morgan Le Fay or the child. You know, again, there are some special roles that, that mix with the formula. And it gets a little bit complicated during the end game because there's ways to overturn a good win or overturn an evil win. But uh, I have to say that it 
turned out marvelously. There were some people there. I wasn't entirely certain that they were down with the social deduction game, but everyone got involved. Everyone understood what was going on. We played it three times in succession. That was that was our level of enthusiasm. I have no conception of the balance because good won all three times. But that may just be hypercorrection or maybe even just normal levels of correction from one of the resistance's perceived faults, which is that bad guys win most of the time, which is fine by my by my reckoning. So Quest was very, very interesting, and I found it a very worthy successor to the Resistance. Much faster, much less intense, but still a lot of quality deduction, and I started exercising some of those same Resistance muscles that have grown sort of atrophied over the course of the pandemic. Namely, well, if this team is clean, what that means is that there's this other combination, and that can't be true, so therefore, you start spinning out all the same scenarios. It was great. I highly recommend Quest. Very quick. Very compelling game. It says it goes down to four players, which is another asset. Most social deduction games don't really get going until you hit six or seven, but we'll see. A very a minor interesting note, though, about the publication, I have to say. Uh, and this definitely fits with my understanding of indie boards and cards. There's this note inside Quest that says, well, this is the way that you can play called the Director's Cut. And I'm like, hmm, Director's Cut can be a loaded term. Does this just mean, well, here's another way you can view the film? Or does this mean, this is the movie I made and the studio ruined it? And there's a note from Don Eskridge, and it definitely sounds a little bit more like the studio ruined it, because he basically has said in the instructions for Director's Cut and online a couple times on Board Game Geek, he says, this is the game I submitted to the publisher. So there's this fascinating thread on Board Game Geek saying, I think there's a structural problem with the game. And a number of people show up and say, oh, could you explain more? Blah, blah, blah. And then the designer himself shows up and he doesn't say, well, you know, I think you'll find with more play that the following goes away. Instead, he just simply says, well, you could try playing the game I submitted to the publisher, which is the director's cut. So we skipped directly to the director's cut. And I have to say, it does seem like the preferred way to play. It doesn't require any different components other than stuff that's involved in the box. And uh, look, if you ask me who I trust more about social deduction games, Don Eskridge or Indie Boards and Cards, it's going to be Don Eskridge 10 times out of 10. Because one of them designed The Resistance, and the other one commissioned a one-night game kind of stole the name of The Resistance without Don Eskridge's permission. Anyway, there's a whole bunch of stuff. It's water under the bridge. Don Eskridge and Indie Boards and Cards buried the hatchet, so I'm certainly willing to forgive and forget. But the version that Don Eskridge published, the director's cut, certainly seems to be the way to go. If somebody ever asks me to play the other way, I'll give it a shot, but with misgivings. Anyway, highly recommend Quest. I'm definitely going to be bringing it to future game nights, trying to get more plays of it. I would love to hear other feedback from hardcore social deduction gamers who really, really like it. Uh, that genre, namely, and to see more people compare it to The Resistance, because so far I think you really are getting a substantial proportion of the pleasures of The Resistance, but in a tiny fraction of the time, and possibly in a package that people who don't like The Resistance might might be willing to appreciate. So that's Quest by Don Eskridge, published by Indie Boards and Cards. Very, very intrigued. And last for me is Formula Day, Mark. I love this game. It's been kept my collection for years and years and i i was i was sort of waning on it i think i've sort of realized why because it's not that i force people to play (laughs) it but people know i like it and sometimes they may force themselves i seem to recall that the last time i played it is you said play this game or we'll give you a wedgie i said no you gave me a wedgie (laughs) and then you made me play it anyway 
That's the way I roll, Mark. It's the way the walker rolls. But in this case, it was three people that love the game just awesome. as much as I do. And it's the, I shouldn't say the longest game. It's the, the most laps I've done in a long time. Because a lot of times it's like, well, let's do one lap and just see how you like it. And then the players usually explode or not understand or not enjoy. Or two hours I later, do. they're all asleep. And so I'm glad. Oh, stop. <laughs> um, so Formula Day, I think in my opinion, sort of has the essence of what a racing game is. It's fast. It gets you around the track. There's no overhead of rules. You're pushing your luck, zooming into corners, trying to do your best. And comes with all these different dice. There are different gears. You're screaming ahead. People are trying to catch up to you, and they get just close enough that you have to start pushing again and and taking those chances and and depleting your tires and and eventually you know spinning out or you know making a mistake or having to you know you know hit the brakes really hard and then they catch up and you're back in this this race i, I just really enjoy Glad Formula you got to Day. Play it. and those are the games we played this week guest starring chip the third now on to the news and why it doesn't matter so walker it's an episode that's a multiple of five so we're going to talk about our patreon yeah hey mark Oh, we have a Patreon. I just want to let people know that despite the fact that we release the unedited version to Patreons and and the patrons get to hear our secret, most intimate thoughts that we don't share with everyone else, like how I love terraforming Mars and how I hate everything designed by Reiner Knizia. I just want to say in all sincerity, just as a segue, uh, we genuinely appreciate the support we get, but we appreciate all the support we get from all of our listeners, including, but not limited to, the the time that you give us by listening. So if you're not able to support us financially, we, we absolutely appreciate and sincerely love any form of support you're able to give us. And at a minimum, just listening to the show definitely constitutes. So thank you very much. So Mark, I sent some emails to Simon Games. I've asked them to put lights in their containers so it's easier for us to play the games in there. Cause oh it's yeah, hard to breathe too. It is. Flamecraft is a very interesting drag. It's like a dragon game, Mark. There's like this nice medieval village. Dragons, they're the artisans of the village. They they make bread and weapons and and cakes. And 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 you 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 control these dragons and it's the cutest game I've seen that in a long time. Delightful. You need to check it out. You need to check it out on Kickstarter. It is called Flamecraft. Later this month on Kickstarter is going to be another project from Ludus Magnus Studios. Normally, I don't really like much of their output, like Nova Etas. Is, uh, it seems a little bit dodgy, but anyway. But this is going to be a follow-up to Black Rose Wars. We're a big fan of Black Rose Wars. It's probably my favorite multiplayer smack people in the face game that I've played since Cosmic Frog. Although it's less going on than Cosmic Frog. More smacky, less froggy. And this is going to be an expand alone, so a new box set with new schools of magic and new wizards and such. And honestly, the amount of variety that's already present in the base game box of Black Rose Wars is very, very impressive. Once you add on to that all the available expansion material, and now a new expand alone, I'm very much looking forward to it. So this is going to be called Black Rose Wars Rebirth, and I would love to see new forms of wacky spell effects for Black Rose Wars. Mark, my uh, schedule got a lot more crowded, right? It wasn't hard enough to, you know, play my 40k talisman game, my <laughs> Batman talisman game, my Star Wars talisman game. Now I got to figure out how I'm going to fit in my Harry Potter talisman <laughs> game. I'm sure you'll find a way to balance your talisman work life balance. 
The other thing we didn't have, Mark, is we didn't have enough games of Marrakesh. There's only like six on Board Game Geek. So Stefan Feld said, no, I'm going to make the actual Marrakesh game. And it's going to be put out by Queen Games. So at least the production value would be high. It looks very interesting. I can't wait to see it. It might be good. He's got a great sure. track record. Stefan Feld, Interesting Marrakesh. news out of the Zenobia Awards. I mentioned when the Zenobia Awards were first launched, this is an award for game designers from unrepre- underrepresented communities in the historical games arena, particularly in the context of historical games, which is often war games. They have a particular problem with representation there, especially. They announced the finalists for the Zenobia Awards, and honestly, looking over the finalists, it looks like an extremely promising crop. I would happily play any one of them. I love it when you find these historical games that are motivated by a sincere appreciation of and or a desire to understand a particular event in history, especially if it's an event in history that I don't know enough about, which actually includes all historical events. And so I'm very much looking forward to seeing whether and how, to what extent any of these designs go to publication, because one of the intents of the Zenobia Awards is kind of like a mentorship process by which they shepherd these games through to eventual publication into a wider audience. And I think for a first year's crop, this is an embarrassment of riches, and I'm looking forward to seeing what the future has in store for both these designs and for the Zenobia Awards more broadly. And I'm going to put a link up to the finalists of the Zenobia Awards in the episode notes. Finally for me, Columbia Games, the war game publisher on the topic of historical games, was founded in 1972 to publish Tom Daglish's design, Quebec 1759, uh, the game about the Plains of Abraham between the French and the English in the Seven Years' War. And now there's going to be a 50th anniversary edition published by Columbia Games. It's apparently going to have a hard-mounted board and bigger blocks because Columbia Games publishes block war games. I'm a big fan of Columbia Games. I, I think that if you're looking for an introduction into historical wargaming, you could do a lot worse than many of the simpler games in the Columbia series. And Quebec 1759 is definitely on the lighter end of the spectrum. Uh, hopefully they fix some of the balance issues because, again, like many historical war games, Quebec 1759 is a, a bit what you would call imbalanced. If you want to evoke a particular historical period... Maybe imbalance is okay, but ideally one could evoke that while simultaneously having valid and viable victory conditions. Anyway, let's see what the redesign holds. It's going to be published in 2022, again for the 50th anniversary of its original publication. That's the 50th anniversary edition of Quebec 1759 by Columbia Games. And lastly, for me, coming up this Saturday, we're going to be streaming Canvas and Rush MD on Twitch and YouTube. Come and check it out. And that is all of the news and why it does not matter. And now on to our feature game, which is Vienna Connection from Portal Games. Vienna Connection was designed by Jakub Pachentki and Ignacy Trevicek, and it was written by Pshemlosov, Reimer, and Jakub Wapot. I would like to apologize very sincerely, both to the four individuals I just talked about, as well as to the entire nation of Poland and anyone in the greater Polish diaspora for what I've done to their names. This is my best effort to reproduce it phonetically, but there we have it. This is a sequel of sorts to the game published by Portal called Detective and Modern Crime Board Game. A number of games have now been published under that system, with more to come. One of them is actually going to be themed around Dune, so it's a long-running system, and they appear to want to milk it as much as they can. So, Walker, why don't you give us an unhelpful summary about what one does in Vienna Connection? Well, in Vienna Connection, Mark, it's like going back to school. It's like very heavy reading with pop quizzes at the end. <laughs> You've got math and algebra and calculus, computer programming, 
geography and analyzing schedules. It's like a choose your own adventure on steroids where you get to uncover the plot. So I, I you see what I did there. I did see uncover the plot. You, you got that? Yeah, I, I picked up on it. It's like four stories linked together, and depending on what facts are true or false, they're going to either aid or deter you as long as as you go along. So it's kind of a spiritual successor to Sherlock Holmes Consulting Detective. That venerable game, which was a series of mysteries whereby you could go and read paragraphs and discover clues and try to put together an unfolding mystery. And indeed, although this is more spy-themed, it is very much about solving a mystery. And in fact, some of the cases have very strong sort of procedural echoes. Now, we're going to give a spoiler-free review of Vienna Connection, but nonetheless, we're going to talk about some of the themes and some of the mechanical elements. So if you're super concerned about spoilers, more power to you. You might want to skip it all. But we're not going to spoil any of the plot beats. We're not going to spoil any of the particular mechanical elements or any of the puzzles. But we are going to talk in detail about how the game feels and how it plays overall and how we would compare it to other types of games. And I I would just like to say at the outset, though, that I've kind of rolled my eyes for years at Portal's slogan. Their sort of slogan is board games that tell stories. And when I think of Portal games and I think of their output, I mostly think of games like 50 for State, Imperial Settlers. I think of Norushin Hex. All designs heavily influenced by Ignacy Trevichek. And I like all those designs to varying degrees, but I wouldn't call them particularly story or narrative rich. This, for the first time, when I sat down to play a Portal game, this is my first game in the Detective series, I finally felt, oh, okay, yeah, Portal games. Games that tell stories. I thought this was the first time they really realized on that promise. Yeah, I'm, and I'm sort of glad that this is our first sort of introduction to this this sort of system, right? I'm glad that I didn't have, you know, play any of the other detective games so I could sort of focus on this one alone and not have to compare them. I agree entirely. We should stress also that this is a review copy that was sent to us by the publisher. They actually, they actually by accident, sent us two review copies, which is why we were both able to play the games independently. So let's start talking about it. you did You did sort of talk about you said that you get to solve solve a mystery, but even then you don't you're not really quite sure if you did. You know, you get to the end of the mission and it says, you know, you sort of input, you know, your facts and and things that you figured out and it and it, it does spit out some because you're putting everything into an app. Yes. And then it does sort of spit out, you know, the output from what you figured out. Now whether or not, you know, that's was the best outcome mm-hmm. or or, or everything, you're just never quite sure. And I, I'm not sure if I like that. You never get that aha moment or that big mystery solved or, you know, that guy comes out and says, I would have got away with it too <laughs> if it wasn't... If it wasn't for this meddling CIA? Exactly. It's just sort of like, yeah, yeah, you know, you did all right. You know, start playing the next one and you'll see how terrible you actually did. <laughs> I, I don't know if you're being entirely fair, but I will say... You're right, absolutely right, that a lot of the cases involved a certain degree of ambiguity. There's not enough time in the cases to explore every nook and cranny, not enough time to pull on every thread, not enough time and not any ability to get all the clues. So as a result, by the end of each case, there are substantial open questions and you are required to act with imperfect information. I loved that part of Vienna Connection. Honestly, that was probably my favorite part of the way it managed information. It felt like spycraft. It felt like I was never in full control of the situation, that I was just trying my best in uncertain times. The narratives that I like, and this is going to be recurring over and over in this review, I like character-driven stories with ambiguity. These stories were in no way character-driven at all. More criticism on that later. But 
there was lots of really good ambiguity. If you compare this to Sherlock Holmes Consulting Detective, that's one a- one aspect of that game that I really didn't like. At the end of the case, Sherlock Holmes co- comes in and he does his Holmes thing where he says, A followed by B followed by C followed by D. If you can't follow that, then you're an ignorant douchebag. Holmes out. And then he walks walks away. This was the exact opposite. This is a situation where, like, we think we know the following things. I guess we should do the following. And then you move on. Yeah, it's like it's almost everyone was everyone you interviewed, everyone in the story was guilty of something. Oh yeah. And I think I think what the game wanted you to do was to thread the needle, make sure you knew what your mission was. This is your goal, and you better, you know, streamline to that and don't get, you know, deflected off on these other tangents and and bring all of the information together and focus on what you're supposed to be solving at that particular time. Writing mysteries in general, and for games especially, can be very, very difficult. This is true for role-playing games especially as well. For a long time, role-playing it, Robin Laws, an RPG designer, has some fascinating things to say about crafting good mysteries. I recommend looking at his gumshoe system if you're at all curious about this kind of investigative storytelling in a, in a narrative setting. Uh, long-form narrative for RPGs. But it's a common mistake to make the players work too hard to get clues, to, like, make perception checks to find something. And I felt that one of the things that Vienna Connection did rather well was, in terms of the substantive bits of information, you could pretty reliably get whatever it is you thought you were going to get by pulling on the thread and spending the time. The part that's fun is not finding clues. The part that's fun in investigative stories is putting the clues together to figure out what's going on or to solve things. And in that sense, I think Vienna Connection was mostly a success. I got to feel clever. I get to feel like I was piecing together the important bits of the narrative so that I could get some basis for action, even imperfectly. Yeah, it did it in an odd way. It was like sort of... Because you never brought anything to to its finish point. That's it's like, true. Okay, well, you know, you explore that one little area, and it's it it, it didn't actually like, complete. You didn't arrest that person or or get that thing. You sort of just sort of keyed it up on the app. It's like I found out that bit of information, so I know that knowledge, or now I know this knowledge. It wasn't. It just lacked that one thing. It was like in the second mission where there was this interesting, you know, recording or interaction between a couple people. And it worked out that it was actually Morse code, right? And because the guy was like slamming his hand on the table and tapping his fingers. And I sort of said that was kind of weird that they, you know, incorporated that in. And so I just sort of like jotted it down on a piece of paper, went to, you know, the Morse code website and it like translated into an actual message for the game. And that's when the game like completely grabbed me and I was all in after that. I will say one exception, though, to that general pattern that I identified, and that is... So putting together the information in an organic, holistic sense as the players to understand who did what and why, that part, I think, is handled very well, all told. The game, though, in terms of its app integration, and we'll, I wanna, we'll have lots more to say about the app integration, doles out these specific things called puzzle clues that are specific bits of data that you have to input into the app. And those, I felt, were dispersed at random and they would just fall from the sky at weird intervals. And I had no ability to anticipate whether I'd be getting a puzzle clue from a particular lead or not. And so that part I felt arbitrary. It was odd. Yeah, I'm going to start going through some of the the points I have here. Like, sort of like just the game components themselves and how it works here. Sure. You got, like, when the mission started, you would get an array of these tokens and you'd have to spend these in order to you know, follow certain leads. Do certain operations, the game, they're called, yeah. Certain operations. 
And uh, how the game works is that you start crossing off on your little checklist every time you follow the lead. And eventually you're going to run out of spaces to check. And once you've checked them all off, then the mission is done. And you just sort of tell the app that I've checked the last check. And then it'll regurgitate you back to you how you've done. Have you collected enough information to, you know, be successful? Is check the last check a joke about Czechoslovakia? Not at all. Okay. I'm a little disappointed. <laughs> And so I felt as though they didn't have any real direction because, like I said, once you finished a card or a, a, or a puzzle piece, there wasn't very many things that that linked it linked you to the next thing. It was just sort of like now you're done with that. Now on to something completely different type thing. There wasn't sort of like this following multiple leads in a chain type situation. I agree with you, but again. I think we're approaching what we want out of a spy story, or at least a story in this context, from very different angles. Because what the impression that I got when playing Vienna Connection, what it was like being a spy, was that you're basically a functionary with gun- with a gun. You're basically some kind of, you know, mid-level bureaucrat trying to collate documents. You're a research assistant with a license to kill. And I thought that was really cool. From what very little I know about spycraft that seems very evocative of what a lot of it was like. You're just trying to piece together these various signals and news clippings and various strange bits and trying to cobble together some kind of sense about who did what and why. And at the end of it, you're going to have to make a call about what to do. And on the one hand, the fate of the world arguably hangs in the balance. But on the other hand, again, Sherlock Holmes is never going to come out from the closet and say, no, you got it wrong. The murderer was John Smith and did it with the candlestick in the lighthouse. Bye. Yeah, I love this the story element of 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 uh, figuring out what's going on, but then they added in these sort of like ciphers. It's like okay, now it's time for the math quiz. Yes, where you have to sort of it's one of those sort of like jumble puzzles where it's like you know three, five, thirteen, fourteen. Yep. What's the next number? Yeah, and I just sort of felt so that out of the game, right? It didn't sort of wedge in with the rest of everything that was going on. I agree. There are decipher puzzles where you have to do the number sequences. I am really bad at those things. I found them trivial. So I agreed. It was just busy work. Pulled me out of the game. I didn't really feel like I was doing spy deciphering. Similarly, there were the code words where you have code phrases and you decipher numbers. That was also just pure busy work. To its credit, the app even has a big button to skip that nonsense. So even they know it's just pointless busy work. I didn't think that was very good at all. Agreed. I just want to dovetail in there quickly with, uh, I think it's a good time to bring up player count because of that type of thing. And I'm just wondering whether or not you feel as though, because how many people do you, I played it solo, mostly. I I pl- played it with an audience, I guess you could say. Fair enough. I was, I was reading aloud <laughs> while, while Butterfly was doing other stuff and she was interested in what was going on. And she was, because she, she watches all sorts of crime shows and stuff on television. So, you know, I would ask her for input you know, just to sort of, you know, include her in the game. But it was mostly a solo experience. And how many did you play it with? I played it with two. And I agree with you that player count is awkward. Here's the thing. I actually have a copy unplayed of the original detective game. It was given to me by a friend who acquired it for Zoom gaming because he thought he'd be able to play it with friends over Zoom. And he was immediately put off and he decided he couldn't do that because of the massive quantities of text that are involved. And I think that this level of text makes the player count super awkward. If you play it solo, you don't get to bounce ideas off of somebody else. And it's just a solitary experience of plowing through a whole bunch of documents. I would imagine. Correct me if I'm wrong. But when you're playing with other people, 
either you have to read everything aloud, and that's a lot of reading, or you're just reading everything collectively, and that's kind of awkward too. And that only only get you to two players sitting side by side. Three, four, five players, that's just more time, more difficulty in making sure that everyone reads all the documents. It's an awkward player count issue, I think. It does say one to five. Like I looked yes. at the box today and I was like, so I was like really five people? Like, no. Especially since I think the amount of time involved. I honestly found that by the end of most games, usually about, I'm going to say about 60 minutes into the case, I had a rough idea of what was going on. 75 to 90 minutes, I had a firm idea of what was going on. The last 30 minutes were just running up the clock. And so I found it a little bit tedious. Like, yes, here's another document telling me something I already know. Oh, the, here's another red herring with details that I don't need. With more people and more more time just deciding everything by committee, I could easily see it going to three hours or so, and that would just be tedious, I, I think. Just on that quick note of the files, it comes with this huge portfolio of full sheets, and it'll say, okay, now you get these document pages, and I thought that was great. You'd pull these huge things out, and they were like either newspaper articles or, or CIA documents or all sorts of things. And for anyone that's going to play it in the future – Make sure you get all of the pages because it'll say get file 200. Well, file 200 might be three pages. Yes. And if you're dumb, like Mr. Walker, you'll just grab the first one that you see. That could be page two. It could be page one. It just depends when you, you riffled through the numbers and then you miss out on large parts of the story that after the fact you realize – I'm not that smart. I don't beat yourself up too badly because I'm just as dumb as you are. I did that a number of times because the one the, the files with multiple pages do say, you know, one out of two or two out of two, but in very, 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 very small text in a dark background. So it's easy to miss. And honestly, on the topic of all these papers you're going to be dealing with, midway through the game, or even just a few turns into the game, you're going to have a whole bunch of cards and a whole bunch of sheets of paper splayed out all over the place. On the one hand, going back to what I said about how being a spy is basically being a functionary with a gun, this is thematically appropriate, kind of, sort of. But all this component creep and all this drift and trying to find out the interview from the newspaper, was that in the file over there or the sheet over there? I can't remember what number it is. And you're just paging through all these things and you start to feel, again, like a research assistant in a bad way. Uh, I, I found dealing with all the components a little tedious, especially by the midway of a case. Yeah, I agree with that. I, I, was, I almost got selfish and started like taking a pen to it and saying, well, I'm not going to play this again, nor am I going to give it away. So I was, you know, I was going to go all crazy, but then I realized, no, I'm going to put it back and someone else can have the same experience. I just went to taking notes on a separate piece of paper. So I agree with you. It's, it's huge. But if you, you know, you dive right in and say, well, this is going to be my game and I'm going to, you know, play it the once, it, it would be very interesting just to, you know, go crazy and just circle stuff and and go get knee deep, as it were. So having criticized, again, the notion of being a research assistant with a license to kill, I would like to stress another way in which it felt kind of cool and evocative of some of the storytelling that I like. It really did emphasize the extent to which, and again, this is my perception of things, I could be completely off base, how interagency or intra-agency cooperation just didn't exist. You know, here we are knee deep in the CIA 
And we don't even know what the, you know, team next door is doing. And this isn't because we're deep undercover or because we can't we can't risk radio communication. No, no, no. This is just because of bureaucracy, son. And if you need to know what another agent of the U.S. government is doing, you have to go there and knock because no one's going to let you know. Anybody that has ever appreciated the, uh, the, the influential television show The Wire, which was entirely about this, will know that this is very reminiscent of how a lot of investigations go. And if you need to find out information on somebody, somebody else might be sitting on a treasure trove, but you have to go and get it. <laughs> so, yeah, th- through the clouds of smoke and alcohol. I just love how it, it very well, it set the setting very well. Uh, you, okay, well, let's talk about the writing then, since, since you bring it up. I liked most of the writing in terms of the details and some of the political events that are happening in the background. And again, being able to clearly understand what clues we needed to put together. But anytime they tried to make it a narrative, like a specific story with characters, I felt that it was a massive failure because the only thing that really happened was you're in the drab apartment smoking a cigarette. You're in the car smoking a cigarette. You offer the informant a cigarette. You answer the phone. There's a tap at the door. You pull out a cigarette. Like, I don't have anything. It's not a moral objection to smoking. It's just, it just seemed like any time the writers, who otherwise, I must stress, I think did a very good job. But any time the writers wanted to inject character or specific people into the story, they just shoved cigarettes into it. Mark, it was the 70s. That's that's what they I did. I know, I know, it's fine. Again, I don't object to it. It's just, I could just tell. It's like, oh, somebody felt like they wanted to get their creative writing juices on. So here we are talking about cigarette butts. I mean, yeah, anyway. Let's talk about the app. Let's talk about the fact that there's an errata right off the bat and how I made sure that I wrote those neighbor- numbers at the very top of my sheet because as you're flying through all this paperwork, you're bound to forget that this yes. actual card has a mistake on it and you might want to, you know, figure out what's actually going on. Yeah, it's a problem. I mean, again, and, and just to, to, to bring it back to its historical forebears, this was also a problem in Sherlock Holmes' Consulting Detective. I actually had a problem where a single letter was misplaced on one of the cards, and it almost sent our investigative team into conniptions of confusion. So <laughs> sometimes minor problems like that can be a serious issue. I don't want to beat them up too badly, but it is a problem, yeah. And then you talked. You already talked about the bypass, which I thought was fantastic. You simply put in the number of the card or the file, and you don't have to go through the silly. I shouldn't say silly. Some people really enjoy doing those. I do not. So you just completely bypass the math problems or the the silly the cipher things, and it just gives you the clue, and you can get on with the story. Yes, I, I will say though that sometimes the app didn't give us what we wanted because it only solves cards, not files. If you enter the number of a card into the app, it will give you a full explanation of what the card is, what it's looking for, blah, blah, blah. And that was great. But files, it doesn't. And we had a bit of a confusion. We felt like we, I don't want to say cheated. I I think it was legit, but we solved a a puzzle without getting into details in a way that I think the game didn't expect us to or wasn't planning on us doing. I still say it was legit. And we then went to the app to try to find guidance. The puzzle in question wasn't in the app because it was in a file, not in a card, which was a strange oversight. And the last thing I want to say about the app in terms of it failing us was that uh, for missions two and three, it there was a bug cosmetically. It still worked, but when trying to in, put in the puzzle solution, it would save correctly and the app knew what we were doing, but it kept showing us the wrong letters. And we were very worried for a while that as a result, we weren't going to be able to proceed because a lot of the story beats are only unlocked by solving these app-driven puzzles. 
I will say that, I, again, I've, I've been very clear about my opposition to app-driven games or app-assisted games. When I saw that it was app-assisted, I was nervous, but it's very unobtrusive. You only use it once every, say, 15 to 25 minutes just to input some simple data, and then you consult it when you need help. And that's it. Other than that, it's all physical components. Yeah, it does have some audio files, too. So sometimes when there's an audio element in the game, you can hit the button. It'll actually play you the recording. And it's also nice having something there as well because it sort of encourages you to uh, look up the history of that of that moment and what's going on. And sometimes there are embedded clues and things that will help you figure out what's going on. And there was that penalty. If you don't input the clue correctly, it'll sort of, you know it'll tell you, oh, you you lose a, a check mark because you didn't enter the, either you put it in the wrong way or you didn't input it correctly. Yeah. And it's, a, it's got the same sort of system as the, as some of the unlock games that we played because of all the files have numbers and you sort of bring in all these clues that give you a number. And if you figure out the clues wrong, you don't have the right number. So you input the wrong number and therefore you take the penalty. It's interesting you bring up the unlock games because I, I think that Vienna Connection had some interesting similarities and some very interesting dissimilarities to the unlock games. Because Vienna Connection was more about solving a case rather than solving puzzles. The actual puzzles tended to be, as we both agree, somewhat perfunctory in nature. Unlike Unlock, which is usually just a series of puzzles that very frequently leverages unique things about components, like using cards in interesting ways and finding details that were visually hidden, Vienna Connection mostly doesn't mess with that. Mostly, again, it's trying to tell a story about solving a case with imperfect information and with people with impure motives. And I, I kind of appreciated that. That was more to my jam. Those times when it did those other puzzle-like elements, those were mostly the times when I started checking out. So I have two other points here. There's, you have this campaign journal. So at the end of the game, it'll it'll tell you some like key phrases, and you have to write them in your journal. And then when you play the next mission, it'll ask you if you have certain key phrases, and it'll give you... Yeah, sometimes it could be a bad thing. Yes. Right. So either it's a detriment or it's something that will help you. And then lastly, I'm just going to talk about the men in the bl- men in black, which is the, we've already talked about the the end of the game. So when you finally finish the last check mark, then the app will will go into sort of story mode, and it will use all of the the puzzle input that it gave you, and it'll give you the story based on all of the information that you gathered, and then you have to make a, a single choice. Uh, and I think it's. Uh, you might correct me if I'm wrong, Marcus, is sort of you're picking out who's guilty or who's the most guilty or or some sort of information that you think will help you the most in the future. It, it depends on the case, but I actually like those moments of tension. It was just, you have limited resources, you only have limited things. Based on what you've gleaned so far, what is it that you want to do with this murky image of the world that you have? Exactly. So, to sum up for me, I personally appreciated the story that it was telling about basically highly armed, highly authorized research assistants trying to pull together information and get some kind of guidance. You never really know for certain much of anything. And that I thought was both thematically appropriate and narratively satisfying, but your mileage may vary. At worst, I think that Vienna Connection was trying to lean into a weird notion of spycraft with ciphers and number puzzles that didn't make me feel like I was part of the story and I didn't really find satisfying to solve to begin with. And I also felt that the document creep started to get a little bit ridiculous as the time of the game wore on, and I felt that the pacing could be uneven. At its best, though, and this is what I was able to glean out of all four cases, you do get those moments where it's like, aha, I think I know what's 
going on? Or, aha, I think I, what I thought I knew turns out to have been entirely false, and now we need to run down this other lead to understand what's, what's going on. Those moments are great, and all told, I think they justify the experience. As far as the cost, as far as the value proposition goes, yeah, you only get four cases at about two hours each if you're playing with two players, maybe more with more, but again, I wouldn't recommend that. Whether that's a good value for you is very much up to you, but if you play responsibly the way that both Walker and I did, both naturally without conferring, we preserved the components so that nothing was destroyed or altered in, in, uh, permanently, so you can pass it off to somebody else. And quite frankly, I'm, I'm, I'm happy they decided to tell four stories the way they wanted to tell them rather than feel the need to say, well, we got to compete with Gloomhaven. So let's have 20 million stories that kind of of watered down narrative. So all told, despite its imperfections, I enjoyed Vienna Connection, even though it's not the kind of game that I want to go to over and over. I do feel like this is finally manifesting the promise of portal games of a board game that tells stories. Yeah. I'm looking forward to the Dune one. I'm going to find someone that is, heavily invested in the dune universe and and propose the game to them and hopefully we can sit down and there'll be an interesting back and forth where he can fill me in on some history and be excited about what's going on and i can focus on on the game element so that's going to do it for this week thank you very much for joining us for so very well about games if you'd like to get in touch with us you can reach walker via his email just roll dice at gmail.com you can reach me mark bigney on twitter at the games you like for more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page, or you can check out our Board Game Geek Guild, which is guild number 3236, and you can find us on Patreon and Twitch. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bickett. Special thanks to what does it generous generously allowing us to use the most excellent song SOS as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesitleak.com. You can reach us by email at soberwrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time and always. Try to be wrong. Remember, remember, you're very wrong. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.